Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to another wonderful session of SACPA. Thank you for braving the elements this morning. I understand the snow was quite heavy in some areas. In West Lethbridge, um, our son, Bear, we got out. Fortunately, he has a Jeep stroller, so we're quite blessed with that. Uh, initially, let me do some housekeeping issues here. Could I remind everyone to turn off their cell phone or cell phone on vibrate? My name is Michael Frank. I'll be your moderator for today. And I must remind everyone that the session will be recorded and available on the SACPA website. Uh, also, could I have everyone in front of you, you've got a uh, wicker basket. Could you everyone have uh, $10 towards lunch today? And could I task someone just to make sure that that's all in? Let's say the person at the 12 o'clock position of the table. So let me remind you that SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. We'd like to thank the University of Lethbridge for its support and notices, Country Kitchen Catering for a great lunch, Shaw TV for broadcasting the sessions on Sunday at 4.30 p.m., and Lethbridge Media for covering all SACPA events. Uh, for the outline today, we'll be doing a, our talk of approximately 25 to 30 minutes with Dr. Hogue. And we'll be having lunch and a question period, and hopefully we'll be finishing approximately around 1.30. What I'd like to do is introduce Mich Dr. Michelle Hogue. Michelle and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, I was her research assistant on some Indigenous education issues, and that was an insight to her passion today. So... To date, there has been very little work done on the literature available on the stories, the narratives, or experiences of those Aboriginal individuals who have journeyed through post-secondary, Eurocentric, paradigm-paced Western education successfully. There's a critical missing-slash-qualitative piece in the literature. So much qualitative data and attrition around the issues of Aboriginal successes focuses on the lack of successes on Western education, also on the negatives or the deficiencies, for example, of how poorly Aboriginal students do relative to non-Aboriginal students. Seldom do we hear how they have excelled or what enabled them. Dr. Hogue is very unique in her work today because she's bringing an understanding of post-secondary experiences of Aboriginal students. It's very important to hear the story from their voices, and also mine, from their perspectives that we will lead a better understanding of success rather than focusing on the deficit. Uh, Dr. Hogue's research entails collecting and evaluating the oral, educational, and experiential narratives of perceived through successfully and unsuccessful Aboriginal individuals who have journeyed through the post-secondary Western education. A bit of background on Dr. Hogue. Dr. Michelle Hogue is the coordinator for the First Nation Transition Program at the University of Lethbridge, and she also teaches in that program. She's a Métis woman from Saskatchewan, and she has recently completed her Ph.D. from the University of Calgary. She has chosen to focus on the successes of Aboriginal students in post-secondary education with a passionate focus on the sciences. Michelle believes the post-secondary education is critical for Aboriginal students, and it is the new buffalo for today. She also believes the young Aboriginal populations are going to be the next leaders and professionals because, unlike the, the non-Aboriginal population, they live in between both worlds, on and off reserve, which will be advantageous in this line of globalization. Please welcome Dr. Michelle Hope. 
Can you hear me? Um, and if you can't hear me, please um, just do the thumbs up. And that also means I'm doing a good job. Um, but um, thumbs up, because I tend to speak quite quietly. Um, okay, um, to all my Blackfoot friends, Francais, um, to all my Cree friends, and hello and welcome to all of you that braved the elements. And I guess I should probably say Merry Christmas, because um, <laughs> this is quite different than what we went to bed with last night, wasn't it? Um, so I just, just maybe to go back here, I, I entitled my talk Oscillating in the Liminal Space of Education. And as Mike said, my specific focus on science between two worlds. Uh, just to give you an outline of what I'm going to talk about, uh, first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about who I am. I don't ever get it. Okay, can you hear me now? Okay. Um, I get to yell, too. This is kind of nice. Um, <laughs> so who am I? I want to talk a little bit about the public puzzlements and questions that um, have engaged me in this particular research. I'll talk about my research a little bit, not a lot, and I'll talk about the experiences of the individuals that I interviewed um, as I went along on this journey, and I'll talk a little bit also about some of the materials I think that are necessary for building bridges between cultures and to enable success at post-secondary education. And I'll talk a little bit about oscillating between the two. And if I have a chance, as all good chemists do, I will have a demonstration for you at the end. And if it doesn't blow up, I'll be really lucky. Um, so we'll finish with that. Uh, so first of all, who am I? Um, I'm of Cree descent, uh, non-status by governmental counting, which actually means that I don't have any rights to land or money, just um, to my heritage, which is dear to me. My grandfather is Cree from St. Boniface, Manitoba, and my grandmother is Métis from northern Saskatchewan. Both are the products of the residential school system and the abusive foster care system, so we know all of the issues that are around that, so I won't I won't belabor that today. Um, they met in Labrette, Saskatchewan, of all places, and my grandfather um, was 20 years older than my grandmother, so he was senior to her. And I just wanted to show you, this is, this is the Labrette Residential School um, that my grandfather and grandmother attended. And so you can see that there's a, there's a fence here, but there's also a fence here. And so when family came to visit, they had to camp outside, um, and they weren't allowed onto the property at all and they could only view their children from a distance. So um, that's a very difficult um, place to be. Oh, so now I've, I'm really sure. <laughs> okay, is that better? Okay. Um, so my own parents, my father is largely Korean, and my mother is not. She's German, so that makes me Métis. Um, my father grew up um, as an Aboriginal but off-reserve in the Fort Capel-Capel area, and they met in Fort Capel and um, lived there for a little while before they moved to Regina um, with some transitions along the way. So I was, um, they moved to what's called the Hood area of Regina. I'm not sure if many of you know what that is, but I was at a conference a little while ago, and um, they were talking about the Hood area of Regina, and so then they flashed this slide up, and there, lo and behold, was my house. Um, so then I learned what the hood area was. And so I lived there for a little while, and then we moved to the west side of Regina. And my own family suffered um, many of the social issues that are commonly spoken about um, and reported in the literature. So growing up, uh, I rarely saw Aboriginal students stay in school. And when we moved to the west side of Regina, I never saw Aboriginal students in school. My siblings both only have less than a grade 8 education. So the school that I went to on the west side of Regina was largely white. Um, it was white. I shouldn't say largely white. But, and I could pass, and so I chose to pass. And that meant that I didn't identify. And it was easier for me than it was for my siblings because I was a redhead and I was light-skinned. My siblings don't look like that. Um, so I never identified in white schools, and I didn't identify when I went through university either. 
Um, but my own dream was always to have an education. And so you can see this is the University of Regina where I went, and this is the First Nations University of Canada that is, as we know, um, under some conflictual uh, situations right now. But when I went to the, to the University of Regina, this tells you how old I am, um, from the left here where this line is, did not exist. And so this existed in this building here, and it was about three or four rooms in the University of Regina. So why education for me then if my family didn't um, do that? Well, to me it was the only way out. Um, my family didn't support education at home. My father, as a matter of fact, thought it was a waste of time. Um, and that's because none of them really had much of an education. And so I was often criticized by my own family and people for trying to be better, for trying to move ahead and do something different. And so that became a huge difficulty. So in order for me to... To, to do that, I actually left home at a very young age. I left at the age of 15, and I was fortunate enough to get a, a basement suite somewhere, and I worked and went to school, and then I went on to university. And so my dream was always medicine. Uh, life happens in ways we don't plan or expect, and so um, I didn't get into, oh, I, I didn't even uh, make it to trying to medicine at, at that particular point. I've tried later on, um, but I didn't end up doing medicine at that time. Um, I had a degree in science, and I worked in cancer research for a number of years, uh, but then I ended up in Lethbridge by circumstance and happenstance, if you want, and two years turned into 20, so I always tell my students there's a magnitude problem there. Um, so I ended up at the University of Lethbridge. Um, so the only job that I could get, um, pardon me, was to teach, and that was because I was overqualified for most of the positions that were in Lethbridge at the time, um, and there wasn't any available at the research station. I did eventually work there. So my only thoughts or my only advice to people is never say never, and the reason I say that is because I never wanted to t teach. I swore I was never going to do that. As a matter of fact, I would have bet you a million dollars, and you would see how poor I was then. Um, but I always was told that I would be a good teacher because I had a way of explaining things in a way that made sense to, um, to a lot of people. Um, but I didn't want to do that. But when I moved to Lethbridge, um, I ended up teaching, and I ended up teaching in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences in the Chemistry Department. But my way of teaching was different than some others. And so I had a lot of questions around teaching. So when I decided not to do medicine, I moved on and did a master's of education and um, developed what I call a narrative periodic table where each of the elements is a narrative short story. So I actually think it's got kind of a cool way of explaining chemistry. Um, but um, anyways, I, I had more questions, and that was about success, and that was about Aboriginal students. Uh, succeeding at post-secondary education in the sciences. And I was particularly concerned with where they were, given that the University of Lethbridge is centrally located on Blackfoot land. Why don't we see students in post-secondary education? What prevents them from entering into post-secondary education? And specifically, why are they scared of science? Because I love science. And I always tell my students, you know, when they come into class, you know, who's scared of science? And they all put up their hand. Who here is scared of science? Who's scared of chemistry? And I say, aren't you breathing? You know, did you go to the bathroom this morning? All of those kinds of things. Well, those are all chemical reactions. So by default, you're a scientist. So let's just, in your chemist, so let's just get on with the program. Um, and so that seems to set them at ease. But why do they leave? So um, one of the statistics that I have kept track of over the years is with the exception of three Aboriginal students, I've never had anybody else go through chemistry um, in the 20 years that I've been teaching. So if you do the math by the number of students that we have, that's astronomical. 
um, and that has always bothered me because we need Aboriginal stu- we need Aboriginal representation in medicine and in any of the science science related disciplines such as research and particularly in this time of globalization. So the issue that I want to just go back to um, for a second is that there is a critical shortage of Aboriginal people in science and health related fields, and even with the current mandate to enable. Um, Aboriginal entrance into the university to enable success, um, we still see little success. And that's what I wanted to address. Um, oops, let me just go back here. So what are some of the big problems? Um, Western knowledge and ways of being have resulted in this current global environmental crisis that we're in. And so if you look at the ozone, if you look at the pollution, if you look at all of the issues that we're dealing with right now, um, that is a result of, of science in some ways. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed now and currently. And so we're going to need scientists, educators, professionals of all those uh, different disciplines, but we're also going to need a different approach because the approach that we took and have taken in the past hasn't worked. And so um, the problem that we have um, right now is that we have this retiring baby boomer population that had less than their replacement number of children. Um, and so we have an issue. We have a shortage of people. And we could go abroad and, and have those students come here. But the only growing population that we have in Canada and in North America is the Aboriginal population. And that's a wealth of uh, youth to draw upon, I guess I should say. Um, And if we look at Aboriginal ways of knowing and Aboriginal knowledge, um, it's embedded in a natural and a holistic approach. It's embedded in a paying it forward. And this type of knowledge, I think, is needed to address the current issue that we're undergoing. And so I think that they, we, are... I'm too old, okay, so my children, um, are the solution to the deficit. Um, It makes no sense, in my opinion, to look for students afar, and it's not that I'm criticizing that. I just think that we're centrally located and we have a wealth to draw upon here. Um, And the reason that I say that is because those that come to be educated here are going to go home to their own country, and that's that's what they want to do, and that's perhaps what, what is right to do. So we need the young people with fresh ideas, and I think that we're centrally located in a, in a really uh, fruitful environment. So I believe that education is the key. Um, if we look at the University of Lethbridge, for example, we're located on Blackfoot land. We're surrounded by the Aboriginal groups of southern Alberta. And those include the Bloods from the Kainai Reserve, the Blackfoot from the Tsuka, and the Pagan from the Pekani, as well as others into, um, into North Africa. North Dakota, but we're not represented in uh, post-secondary education, in particularly in the sciences. Um, so that's a huge concern for me, and that's something that I would like to address at the institutional level. And I often hear, and it's no criticism, but I often hear uh, very negative comments such as, they can't do this, or if they would just get up to speed, or um, they're so far behind that it's going to take so much time. Um, and it's a, it's a biased philosophy that Leroy Little Bear often says, um, and he coins in his books, Indians can't do science. And I, I disagree with that philosophy because, actually, I do believe that Indians did invent science, if you go back to the historical aspects of, of where we are right now. So the, the traditional or the, the current approach to education, or historically anyway, has been a deficit approach. What they can't do rather than what they can do. So what is the knowledge 
and ways of being that they bring to the table. It's a different way of knowing that I think is really important. So that negative or deficit approach is a, is a Eurocentric evaluation. And so when I talk about Eurocentric, I'm talking about um, the current situation in Western. So um, that being said, um, even though there is a shortage um, and not a, a good representation, I have had uh, a handful of students um, who have successfully completed post-secondary education and in the sciences. And my question has been, well, how did they do that when so many can't and don't? And how did they bridge that, that chasm or that gap, if you want, or that space between um, that currently exists between Eurocentric and Aboriginal science? How were they able to do that? And so that space um, is often called a space between, and Ted Aoki um, talks about that in his, in his work, um, and that space has often been coined um, as a gap. And I'd like to look at it from a different approach. What if we looked at it from a positive approach, a liminal space, a space of possibility that has a complexity and difficulty, but where we can have those conversations about how to do that, how to engage and, um, and have a safety in those conversations as well. So this is um, my philosophy. What if we took um, Aboriginal science and, and looked at it from the Aboriginal perspective first and bridged it to Western, and then we take the Western perspective and look at, at analyzing that or talking about it in a different kind of way. So if we have that conversation, if we bring both people um, to the table and talk about that, and so we have this bridge that we can bridge both cultures. So I like the high-level bridge. <laughs> And so once we have this, how can we provide the resources to enable success of Aboriginal individuals in science-related disciplines so that when um, we have that education, they can go back to the community and do the kinds of things that need to be done and, and also educate the population as a whole, both Western um, and non-Western or uh, Aboriginal. So my research, um, just to talk quite quickly about it, but briefly, I had uh, the great fortune of, of interviewing 20 wonderful people. Um, and I did this in an open-ended conversation. So in, in our culture, um, you don't ask a lot of questions, you have a meal. And so I had the good fortune of taking my tape recorder to a whole lot of different restaurants in town and uh, turning it on and just having a conversation for two or three hours over, uh, over a meal and asking about their experiential journey through post-secondary education and through science in particular for those. And I didn't totally do um, all science. Um, there were some that weren't. Um, and I wanted to know how they succeeded, and so what was their journey. And the interviewees were both women and men um, from a variety of Aboriginal groups across um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and into New Mexico. And I really wanted to go all the way across Canada, but that was a little bit daunting for um, a dissertation. Um, but what they had in common was that they had an Aboriginal heritage and that they had succeeded at some um, post-secondary level. So they had already trained. Um, gone through post-secondary education, and particularly in the sciences, uh, was my focus. So what were some of the outcomes? Each and every one of the students that I talked to said that before, or people that I talked to, um, not students anymore, um, before they got to university, they didn't have the academic preparedness, and so that they had to do something to um, increase that. And that post-secondary education was daunting, um, that there was no space or place to be Aboriginal or to acknowledge the culture, and that the Western or the Eurocentric way of teaching, so that the front of the classroom, um, top-down type of lecture, was 
um, difficult, and that science made it difficult to understand and to succeed. So that essentially, initially anyways, it was a culturally unfriendly place in terms of academics. Um, so what were some of the outcomes? Um, that they talked about as well. Um, the linear sequential type of learning um, that is currently taught in the Euro-Western system um, where we go from kindergarten through to grade 12, but in a sequential kind of manner, and all of our subjects are independent subjects that aren't related in a holistic manner, is a struggle for our students. Um, and then that way of teaching has little relevancy. When you look at the holistic learning model for Aboriginal students, um, it's cyclical um, and it's... Um, it's based on coming to an end and then a beginning again. So a lot of the students, particularly in science, say, well, why bother? I'm just going to fail anyway. Um, so um, I wanted to, I asked the question, how did, how did they succeed? And so for many of you um, who aren't familiar, this is the, or for any of you who aren't familiar, this is the medicine wheel. And often we talk about it in terms of spring, summer, winter, and fall. And, and it's used to represent a lot of different um, other aspects as well. And this is the center. So if we begin at, at the east, which is spring in the medicine wheel, um, all of my interviewees uh, said that they had a dream and a vision. And they saw themselves in that dream and that vision. And that, that was for them, and that's what they wanted to do. They also, going into the summer, had the inner will and strength and the agency to do that. So that was like growing that dream in terms of summer. And then they harvested that. They got the skills, the knowledge, and the ability uh, to take that forward into a new transformation, a new transcendence at a different level. And this is a cyclical process um, which goes around and around and around. Around. And that can be individuals and courses or else in a program. But in the middle of this is, is the center, and that's what governs that whole, um, that whole cycle. And I call these individuals who are in the center the cultural oscillators. Those are the ones that I interviewed. Um, okay. So, pardon me. Um, so those that succeeded all said that they had mentors along the way. Each and every one had a mentor um, that listened and provided guidance and safety and time. And surprisingly to me, all of those mentors, um, especially at the academic level, were non-Aboriginal. They were the people that took the time. Um, and they allowed me to be Indian, which is what a lot of people said. And they had a spiral or a circular way of teaching, which is the medicine wheel and how that differs from the Eurocentric. And they recognized the need to have repeated access, repeated times around, the interconnectedness and the relatedness. And importantly, they provided cultural safety. They were interested in learning about my culture. So in the center um, of that circle were my cultural oscillators. And I, I distilled it down to about six. There are many, many other characteristics, but they were all pioneers. Okay, so they were often the first in their family or the only ones in their family uh, for many generations to go to university. They were the ones that had ideas about what they wanted to do. Um, that was different. Um, they were self-actioneers in that they took it upon themselves to do that themselves. And they were cultural interpreters. They were able to interpret both the Western culture and their own culture. And they were able to build those bridges, which was really important for them. And they were reflective differentiators in that they were able to step back and look at situations. So even if they failed um, or if something didn't 
seem right or somebody made a, 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 a racist statement, they were able to step back and look at that, differentiate it based on the situation and the circumstances. And five minutes. Okay, well, I'm going to go fast now. They were resiliacs, and that's a word that I've synthesized in that they were actively resilient. They made themselves be resilient. And they were visionaries. They had a vision for something different. So how can we do that? Well, I think that we need to attend to cultural safety. Um, currently, um, the situations that we have at institutions aren't sometimes culturally safe, and so we need to take a different approach. We need to have a governing frame if we look at how that might work. What knowledge is expected in particular disciplines such as medicine, for example, or science? And then blow up the traditional or the Western way of teaching. And I don't mean that literally. Um, I just mean that we need to look at teaching in a different kind of way, different methods and different strategies. And how could we do that? Well, if we look at it from an indigenous base first, what is the topic? How can we approach it using traditional knowledge and stories and narratives? And then build the bridge back, as I said, if we look back to that high-level bridge. But it's critical to note, and I want to be very clear about this, that we're not changing the standards because Aboriginal students do not want special treatment. They don't want a lesser education. They just want a chance, and they want to approach it from a different way. So the starting point, perhaps, from an Aboriginal paradigm, and it has to have relevancy and application. And that requires support and funding, um, and so from community, um, from the community as well, because our, our students are um, family and community first. Um, the students that come to the university are different than my non-Aboriginal students. They're not, they're not younger. Oftentimes they're single parents or parents of many children. Uh, their issues are different um, and they don't have the luxury of going to school all day and then going home to study all day. Um, it's different. Uh, the funding that they get is at the poverty level, if they get it. Child care is an issue. Transportation is a huge issue. Many of them carpool in cars that don't work um, from the reserve. And then if one, if one car breaks down, nobody's coming to class that day. And on a day like today, um, many people don't come. Uh, academic support. Uh, we need stratified, stratified bridging programs. We need centers and houses of learning. And I've talked about this. Um, I would love to have a place on campus and not something that's in the basement, um, but something that's a visible um, space so that it's a home, so that we can invite other non-Aboriginal people into the environment, into the house. You can't invite somebody through your door and, and, and have a conversation with them if you don't have a door. Um, so we need that. And we need mentoring. So we need partnerships of all sorts. And we need Aboriginal teachers in the community teaching Aboriginal students. Um, and partnerships with universities and for young children who are coming to the university. Um, so we need to start young and we need to have community-based programs that we can bring them to the university and have some of our students go out there and do that as well. So we need to take a capacity-building approach and not a deficit approach. Um, and um, as I said, in this economic crisis, the only growing population is the Aboriginal population. We have a unique opportunity located where we are to distinguish ourselves um, from our competitors to the north, the U of C and the U of A, um, and look at the success of Aboriginal students. So my concluding remark is that it is relevant relative and it is relevant and it's relevant to our community and to the future. So let's just not get another round to it. Let's just do it and that's some chemistry for thought for you. And I have a demonstration but I'd like to first of all thank some people because um, without 
them, I wouldn't be here, that's for certain. And these are my interviewees. My supervisor, Dr. Hans Smith, um, and my committee, Dr. David Gregory, was a great mentor for me. Uh, he's now moved on to the University of Regina. And I was well-funded through the U of C, SHRC, Graduate Division of Educational Research, um, and the University of Lethbridge. And I'd like to thank um, my supervisor, Mario Mello, for coming today and uh, for listening to all of my rants and raves, and to Mike for um, being my student and now my mentor, and my daughters and my life skill mentors, because without them, I wouldn't have a reason to be doing this. So Kate Haley and Maddie, thank you very much. And thank you for your attention. Thank you.